0: So I would say that the most underutilized but also pivotal tool is repetitive reading of the Bible. Uh, After having just heard what it says over and over and over again, you just get more familiar with it. It's kind of like um, when you visit a town for the first time and you are unfamiliar with the streets. But if you go there over and over and over again, then you know exactly where the best places to eat are and you know exactly where the best places to stay. And so repetitive reading helps us to know the neighborhood.
1: Somewhat anxious, always authentic. This is Real Life Loading. I'm your host, Shelby Abbott. And our desire with this podcast is to help guide you toward the life-changing power of Jesus for relationships in a constantly shifting culture. We're called Real Life Loading dot, dot, dot. And those three dots at the end of our title describe being in process. We haven't at all arrived. We're very much in a state of loading, and it's my job to be a trusted friend, to come alongside you and help you walk closely with God in the humor and hardship of life. I love interacting with young people because I know the potential you have to change the world for the glory of Jesus, and that's really what this podcast is all about. Well, we're in the middle of this holiday season, so I have a gift for you. What's the gift, you might ask? Well, it's some of the best spiritual wisdom, advice, and encouragement wrapped up in the form of my time with author, Bible teacher, and Jesus-loving powerhouse, Jen Wilkin. That's right. I was kind of freaking out when I had the chance to get some time with one of the most purposeful and influential voices today for the glory of the gospel. I'm not joking. She's incredible. To start, Jen and I are going to talk about her love for pugs, advice for helping lead a new Christian through the beginning stages of reading and studying the Bible, and then we'll talk about her thoughts on deconstruction, sitting in dissonance, and how to help people think critically about what they actually believe. Jen is the gift that keeps on giving, and I'm so grateful I had the opportunity to talk with her. Jen, I actually thought about wearing my um, Cavapoo t-shirt today to try to impress (laughs) you. Because we bought a COVID puppy a couple years ago, and it's it's a Cavalier and a miniature poodle. And we are not the type of people who would ever get a dog. So yeah, uh, I'm not going to say that you've done this, but <laughs> the Lord has used several people in my life to soften my hard heart <laughs> and open it up to doggies. <laughs> but I bought the shirt. and My wife was like, don't ever wear that thing.
0: Oh, no, you need to wear it. I, I feel, People will start giving you gifts with your dog face on them if you're not careful. I have a whole shelf in my office of pug gifts that I have received through the yeah. years. Um, How
1: many pugs do you have?
0: Oh, only two at a time. I mean, anything beyond that would look crazy, right? <laughs> um, so we have, uh yeah, we always have a pair. And um, right now we're on our second. So we've had four total. Okay. So we're on our second pair. Okay. And uh, I'm not, a, I think I've misrepresented myself as a dog person. I'm not a dog person. I'm a pug person. Like it, it took everything in me to embrace pug ownership. Okay. So, yeah.
1: They're snorty, aren't they? They kind of sound like pigs.
0: Yeah. Well, It's adorable, though.
1: It's the adorable version (laughs) Well, I'm not knocking it at all in any way.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounded a little like maybe you were, so I just wanted to make sure we were still communicating along the same lines.
1: Yes. If there's an edge in my voice, I apologize. My wife's aunt has a pug, and she uh, kept it in the kitchen behind baby gates, and when it would want out, it would constantly snort like a pig. And so I thought that was adorable slash a little confusing. But you guys are used to it, right?
0: Well, it is weird. Yeah, you have to turn up the volume when you're watching the TV with one on your lap because you can't hear over the snoring. <laughs> but we like to think of them as sort of, they're sort of like emotionally available cats. That's the way we think of pugs because the snoring's kind of like furring, you know.
1: Right. All right. I'll try to reframe it then. Somebody told me that they uh, once asked you a question in a Q and a time and, and you'd kind of skirted the answer. So I'm going to ask you right now, uh, what's your personal theology on the statement, all dogs go to heaven? <laughs>
0: Um, I think that, uh, whatever we need for our eternal joy will be there. And, um, it feels to me currently like that would involve pugs. Uh, but I will not say that they're not going to be there. I will say the greatest challenge to my, um, desire to say, yes, they will be there is that, um, based on all measures, they are experiencing eternal bliss right now. They're enjoying their heavenly reward in this life. So, you know, based on the idea that if you have your reward now, you have no reward in heaven, they may not make it. We'll see.
1: Right. So the common grace we experience today is their eternal reward. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. When you think about... um you know, maybe the things that you wrestle with or struggle with anxiety wise, is there anything that keeps you up at night or are you kind of like a good sleeper? You're just like able to hit the pillow and go to bed quickly.
0: I fall asleep like a brick every night, but that doesn't mean that I don't have things I get anxious about. Right. It just means they don't, they don't bedevil me at bedtime. Uh, yeah, I think the things that I get anxious about are, um, I have some concerns about, um, the broader issues that are besetting us in the church. Um, all of the abuse stuff that's gone on uh is is a top of mind concern to me. You know, I'm a woman who's done ministry predominantly to a female demographic for all of my time in leadership and so I know the sad stories of women yeah. and um to know that we've had systems that are built that actually keep women in oppressive spaces or harm women is deeply upsetting to me. And so it's not just women, it's always women and children, it's just the the most vulnerable. Uh and so I think I'm always asking the question Am I helping to correct the problem or am I potentially perpetuating something if I haven't spoken up or haven't, you know, thrown? And so I think the things that cause me anxiety are, honestly, I have an unexpected platform in middle age. I never thought anyone would listen to one word I had to say outside of my local church and never had a thought for it. And so I feel like I have a responsibility there, but it there's no roadmap a lot of times. So I'm always trying to think, how can I leverage this on behalf of others in a way that might have some long-term benefit to the Big C Church.
1: Good. I'm, I'm glad that you take that as like, oh, this is a precious, treasured responsibility to do so with the platform that God has given you in this time. I will say, too, that it might be somewhat easy to think that maybe you're only communicating at times, to just also middle-aged women, and they're the only ones who are listening to you, buying your books, and that kind of thing. I found that not to be true. I've been in college ministry for 20 years, and everybody knows who you are. Uh, so I ended up kind of putting out on Instagram, <laughs> if you could ask Jen Wilkin one question, what would it be? And so I had a lot of direct messages come in, uh, mostly from women, but there were some from guys as well. And then I peppered in a few questions of my own, so we'll have fun, okay? Uh, so Amanda wrote, let's say you've just led your friend to Christ, which would be amazing. Uh, as you then disciple her... What are some of the first passages in Scripture you'd take her to? Like, what are the most important things you'd teach if you only had a short time with her?
0: Um, I would probably—you see, there's two ways you could go with this. You could start with, hey, let's read the Bible together, um, which is certainly valuable. And you could probably start with one of the Gospels. I know most people like the Gospel of John. My personal favorite is the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, So you could do that. Or you could even take something that's actually way more accessible, in my view, and that would be something like James, which is wisdom literature and talk through because it begins to develop in them a sense of the ethical beauty of being a, a Christ follower um, And it's not a very long book. And so it can help them see, oh, I can ease my way into this. Right. Um, but I would also really argue that most of us, even people who've been believers for many years, because this is my experience with the Bible literacy conversation, most of us aren't really sure how to read the Bible in a way that is giving us tools versus just giving us ideas, you know, disconnected, disjointed ideas. Um, And so I would say that what you could do is read something um, like Women of the Word that shows you... Um, just a really simple, basic method for reading together uh, and then read through a book together, something like the book of James. But you could also start uh, with a something that gives them good lenses for how to understand the Bible. So you could take them through like a really basic um, book on foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. This is what it means to be a Christian, because most of us, we... I always say we get saved on relatively little information. I mean, praise God, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Most of us come into the kingdom not able to uh, articulate what's just happened to you. And so helping them to form a a framework for how the Bible is understood that is obviously drawn from people who've studied the Bible for centuries and are saying, you know, here are the categories to think through. So I think you can take it either way.
1: So good. Yeah. I've heard that. Go to the Gospel of John first. But there's a lot of like interesting and kind of confusing things in the Gospel of John sometimes that I I want to point people to. I haven't thought about James, so that's a great idea.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wisdom literature is kind of a slam dunk.
1: It really is. That's awesome. Um, Are there any specific truths, doctrines, or insights you would prioritize teaching college students?
0: Oh, yeah. You know, with all the talk about deconstruction, and it's fascinating to me as someone who, in my own lifetime, I have had a protracted season of doubt. And I actually don't know a lot of other people who haven't. So I think what's different right now is because we have such a cancel culture mentality, Mm -hmm. we think it's all or nothing. And we see doubt as a sign, oh, it must be nothing. Instead of, no, maybe you just need to sit with that a little longer. Because you combine that whole cancel culture vibe with our instant gratification wiring that we have. You know, I mean, if I want it, I think about it, my phone sniffs that I thought about it and Amazon delivers it to my front porch. (laughs) And so we're not good at sitting in dissonance. You know, we're not good at waiting. We want immediate resolution to any discomfort. And doubt is many things, but it is certainly discomfort. And so we don't want to press through. We don't want to let it cook. We're like, gosh, maybe everything I believed is wrong because I listened to this one podcast or read this one article. And I think that we forget that we have a historic faith like this faith has stood the test of time. And not only that, but I would challenge anyone out there to find a more beautiful story than the one that we call ours. And that's what I would say at 53 is, I I haven't heard a story that more accurately describes the human condition and what's the problem, what's the solution, and where do we come from than our story. But, you know, it takes time uh, to develop a sense of confidence in that story. And it's not a quick fix. And so I think that uh, anything that grounds you in a historic faith. So, you know, study the confessional creeds of the church and ask, why did someone take all of the time to word this exactly this way? What were they worried about at that point in church history? What What should we be worried about today? What is it guarding us against? Most people I find who are deconstructing, and I say this respectfully, they are leaving a faith they never truly knew.
1: Yeah, that, I agree. Uh,
0: and so I would say, you know, before you hit the door running, do your homework. Yeah, It's not their fault in many cases because the church has actually communicated to people, particularly middle school and high school. We've communicated to you that all you need is a quiet time a couple times a week, and that's just not going to form you uh, for the long term.
1: That's, yeah, that's really good.
0: But I, I do, you know, I lay a charge at the foot of the church because it's one thing for you to realize, oh, shoot, I don't know what I believe, but then if the church has never said, here's how to learn what you believe, you know, it's no wonder people are leaving. We've, we've not given them, we have downloaded information to them in sound bites instead of equipping them with tools to be good thinkers. So yeah. I actually look at these people who are deconstructing with a ton of compassion. And I'm sure you do too. Yeah.
1: I don't,
0: I would not lay the blame with them.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's why am I responsible? How am I responsible for some of the areas where people have decided to look at it and say, no, I choose something else that is on me Uh, and not just like, oh, yeah, that's on me. No, it's actually on me. Where have I said and mostly behaved in a way that has made someone go, I'd rather choose something else than what you say you believe in. Like, let me reflect on my own life and go, where are the areas that I need to change and actually live as if I believe the Bible were true? then that would be transformative, I think, for other people as they look at that kind of lifestyle.
0: Yeah.
1: And now it's time for three dots, three thoughts on real life floating. We'll get back to my time with Jen Wilkin in just a second. But this is where I share three simple ideas that could potentially change your life. They probably won't, but they could. Thought one. Every person you meet has something they desperately want to talk about. Ask the right question, and even the quietest person won't be able to stop talking. For me, it's the Fast and Furious franchise. If you ask me which film's the best in the series, you better cancel your plans for the rest of the day. So, ask good questions as you're with people who are familiar or who are strangers, and watch them light up when you get them talking about their favorite things. Thought. I've found that Christians have a tendency to really overuse the phrase quiet time. I do it myself even, if I'm honest. It's typically used to describe personally connecting with Jesus through Bible reading and prayer and or journaling. But when you think about it, there are plenty of raucous ways to spend time with God. Sing a worship song at the top of your lungs. Shout a Bible verse from a mountaintop on a hike to hear the echo bounce back to your ears. And you know what? Even if you're frustrated with God, you could feel free to scream at Him. I promise, He can handle it. And if you don't believe me, read the Psalms, like most of them. So, crank the volume up to 11 and have a loud time with God today. Thought 3. When you're in your early 20s, you'll start getting invited to a lot of weddings. And depending on the event, there's usually a DJ or a band and a lot of dancing at the reception. So I'm going to let you in on a little secret for when you want to get out there and set fire to the dance floor. Ready? Dancing is 5% body and 95% face. No matter how bad your moves may be, as long as your facial expression says, I'm an incredible dancer, people will get on board. Try it. And make sure your face owns it. This has been Three Dots, Three Thoughts on Real Life Loading. Now let's get back to my conversation with Jen Wilkin. Jen's going to talk about how women have typically been poorly and under-resourced in the past, her thoughts on the current and future state of the church, and then she'll convince you of the power of repetitive Bible reading. Okay, so one of my good friends is named Jocelyn. Jocelyn said, why do you think women – this is her words now, okay? (laughs) Why do you think women have been given crappy resources over the years, and how can we encourage more women to care about solid theology and teaching that isn't watered down?
0: Uh, I think that we have been given crappy resources. There, I think there are a lot of things driving that. I think there are market forces that drove it. Some of the reason we've been given crappy resources is because we continued to buy them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But some of it is because there has been an absence of, of a female presence in academia. And so um, you didn't have a, a critical mass of, of women who were theologically trained but you did have a critical mass of men who were. And so, uh, and then there were there were rules. I'll tell you, when I started into the women's, the, the pink ghetto, so to speak, in the, <laughs> in the 90s, there were rules to how a woman could step onto a platform. And it went a little bit like this. It was, you started with a personal story or a joke to warm everybody up, which there's nothing wrong with that rhetorical device. But I mean, it was like, you could not deviate from this script. Yes. You would stand up and tell a story um, that would move them to tears or that would make them laugh. And then you would maybe teach something, but it was very story-driven. It was based on your testimony the whole way through. And then at the end, you would read a poem or you would sing a hymn or you would, you know, there was some sort of like way to close it that was sort of artistic and feely. And so I think women just kind of got indoctrinated into thinking, oh, I guess that we need to be resourced at the feelings level. I guess that's, that's just how it is. And, and I think then you add on top of that. Ah, uh, just a general malaise around intellectualism in the church. It was, you know, there was a very strong anti-intellectual yeah. undercurrent um, that just meant that when we thought about what it meant to be a person of faith, thinking was not a part of it. It was just how you felt, and so people judged the health of their relationship with God based on how they felt about God. Um, and that's a terrible way to live. So I think that women have been under resourced or poorly resourced. In some ways, because of a supply and demand issue, and then women in my generation and older didn't always take themselves seriously academically. Um, We just hadn't had received that messaging. But I've also found I would have thought that among younger women, because they came up through just the school system, being told you can be a scientist or you can be a, you know, there weren't the same limitations on on their career possibilities. I would have thought that those younger women would have entered into faith spaces with more of an academic or an intellectual awareness. And yet what I have found is that they tended to take their thinking hat off when they would walk into the church. And so it has been a challenge both to help older women and younger women understand that we're all called to love God with our minds.
1: Yeah. Um, My friend Rebecca, she said, what are a couple of your most precious testimonies of God's faithfulness to you? When did he speak into a dark season or a heavy circumstance in your life in a meaningful way? And what did that look like?
0: Oh, gosh. Um, one that comes to mind uh, would be just related to teaching the Bible, which may not sound like that big of a deal to you know, people have personal issues that they can respond to this question with, but I feel like the Lord has given me in my familial relationships a ton of relational wholeness, and I sometimes have thought He did that because that gives you more bandwidth than someone who's dealing with a lot of crisis in the home um, to do ministry. And so, for me, most of my major moments of where I've said, "Oh, the Lord came through," they have been related to trying to be a woman in ministry in the church, and um, there have been times where I've thought. Why is it so hard? All I want to do is just teach women the Bible and I can't find a place in the local church or I can't find a place, you know, why is it always so hard? And there were times where I thought, why do I care about this so much? Why can't I care about something else? Uh, And the Lord has shown me over and over again that none of those seasons where it feels like the wandering in the wilderness, none of those are wasted. And the Lord always gives a place for you to use a gift that He has given you because He doesn't give gifts that are not needful. Um, and I've had to learn that again and again and see His faithfulness. And sometimes that meant leading in my living room, and sometimes that meant leading in a giant room, and sometimes that meant leading in the community, sometimes it meant leading in the church, And uh, but knowing I can trust the Lord to give me, uh, there will be a place for my gifts to be used for the benefit of the body.
1: Have you found that it's uh, sometimes difficult to talk with younger people as they look at you and go... Well, yeah, it's easy for you to say as you're on a stage, how have you talked to them about what it means to lead in a living room and know that that has significant value? How do you disciple them in that way?
0: Well, I think if you are hoping for the platform, that's a red flag. Yep. Uh, I think you have to be willing to, like I said, I never had a vision for anything other than serving in my local church is all I ever wanted, Um, even even if that meant in a living room setting. But like. That's all I ever wanted. It was just extremely hard, you know, for various reasons. Sure. Um, and I think if you're like, how do I broadcast myself? That's probably a reason to sort of say, why am I doing this? Because I would have been content. And that's actually a way that I have looked toward who was I going to invest in and mentor. Um, Elizabeth Woodson, she's an example of this. When I first met Elizabeth, we met for coffee and um, she asked me if I would Um, look over a curriculum that she was writing. And I said, well, who are you writing this curriculum for? And she said, Oh, I have a group of five women who's coming to my apartment each week. And she was writing a curriculum over the book of Jonah. And I thought, okay, she wants this. Like she doesn't mind, you know, and so, and, and I wasn't wrong. I mean, she's, she's fantastic. Um, and so I think that we have to ask, like, what do I need from this? Now, I definitely need something from it. I don't want to kid you at all. Like I need to know that the work I put in meant that someone understood the Lord differently and loved Him more deeply. I need to know that. Uh, I, I want those feedback loops. But I could have taught in my living room for my whole life. and I, And I sometimes think about my living room and miss it a lot.
1: I found that in this new season, I guess we'll call it, after COVID, I've heard a few pastors talking specifically about what their goals were uh, before COVID and all the stuff that's happened in the country and those goals really shifting in a lot of ways because before COVID, it was numbers, 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 get more people here. And now I'm hearing a lot more about discipleship. Uh, going deep with the people we do have here, even if that's only going to be 150 people for the next 20 years. Does that give you encouragement or how how do you feel about all that right now?
0: You know, the thing is, we're going to see church membership shrink. And I think a lot of people feel fear around that, but I think it's always important for us to remember that the church of God does not shrink. What we're going to see is its actual size and people who had a casual relationship with it or for whom it was a cultural practice, they'll begin to drift away. And um, although it will be painful to watch, it's a resetting of an expectation, and it's a very clarifying moment. And I'm like, the people who will still be here will be, you know, let's go. And so um, I, I do think there will be there will be a more accurate reflection of the actual size of Christianity, but it will be a deeper and more meaningful sense of belonging and, and uh, opportunity for discipleship than we've seen in a generation.
1: That's good. Yeah. That gets me so excited that, yeah, we're getting more of the authentic believers who are not doing, like you said, culturally.
0: Well, I know, uh, you know, right now we're talking to a a younger population and that gets dogged on a lot and it makes me nuts because that's my kids. Like that's my kid's generation and my kids are not losers. Um, And (laughs) the things that bother, you know, the older generation is like, well, I mean, they don't, they don't care about money. Like they're not motivated, but they're motivated by causes more than about money. And I'm like, think for a minute how amazing that is. These are people who are not motivated by, you know, shallow, dumb things. They're willing to do hard things and for no compensation. Uh, and think what that could mean for the church, you know, for this younger generation that's coming through. Not only that, but um, the exposure that this younger generation has had to all different kinds of people, right? And that they don't think of people as categories. They actually know living, breathing humans who fit um, what, historically in the church has been treated as a category that you avoid, you know? And so just the humanizing factor uh, relationally that this younger generation has with people of all different belief systems, of all, you know, sexual orientations, you name it. I get so excited about what that will mean for the health and beauty of the church moving forward in into the future because they're not motivated by appearance and they're not motivated by money. And I think that the older generation sometimes doesn't like that because it feels like an indictment on them mm. uh, rather than looking at that and saying, this is something we should welcome and, and leverage.
1: Yeah, that's really great. Um, I want to read my final questions from, from one of the ones that I fished out to other people. This is from Claire. She was also a student on our summer mission one year, and she said this. What active learning strategies and tools do you see as most effective in bridging the expert amateur divide and increasing the actual learning versus consuming of information in the church?
0: Claire, I can tell you've been listening along. Yeah, that, those are some terms that mean a lot to me. Yeah, um, so I would say that the most underutilized but also pivotal tool is repetitive reading of the Bible. It sounds so boringly dumb that why would we even invest time in that? Um, but I'm telling you, so like right now, I'm getting ready to put together a study on Revelation. And so what I'm doing is listening to someone read me the book of Revelation Over and over again, so I'm reading it, I'm listening to it, and uh, because I mean, think about that book. You know, as a perfect example, we're scared to even
1: (laughs) crack it open, look at it, because it
0: feels so hard to understand. But that's true, really, of any book of the Bible, to varying degrees. And um, I think we have dramatically underestimated how much more able we are to understand um, what it means. Uh, after having just heard what it says over and over and over again, you just get more familiar with it. It's kind of like um, when you visit a town for the first time and you are unfamiliar with the streets, but if you go there over and over and over again, then you know exactly where the best places to eat are and you know exactly where the... And, and like one of the ways that I've described this before is I read a an article once about... Um, I was on a plane and I read about Istanbul, which is a place I've always wanted to visit. And they were recommending all of these different places to stay and, you know, restaurants to eat at. And I was like, that's amazing. I should hang on to this article. And then I flipped to the next article and it was on Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is a place that I have been many, many times. And the recommendations they were making for where to stay and where to eat, I was like, these are terrible recommendations (laughs) because I knew Santa Fe. And so then you're like, wait a minute, somebody has an angle here. Like they're, you know, someone's paid them to tell me what the best places are to shop and eat in this article. Well, I mean, come on, guys. That's what a lot of teachers of the Bible are doing. They're giving you their, you know, they have an angle for why they want you to think that a passage says a particular thing. And the only way you'll know whether they are accurately giving that to you is if you know the neighborhood. Uh, And so repetitive reading helps us to know the neighborhood in a way that you just have so much familiarity with it that someone can't pull something out of context in the way they would otherwise. So, um, repetitive readings of entire books of the Bible, and then, of course, reading the Bible as a whole and getting a grip on um, the, the overarching narrative. They don't, that's not a sexy thing, but it's such a basic, important tool.
1: That's so good. And thanks for being willing to entertain all of these questions from my friends. I'm seriously so grateful. Thank you for being with me today.
0: Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for giving me the opportunity.
1: I'm not going to lie. I was real excited that I got the chance to talk to Jen Wilkin. She has been such an influential part of so many people's lives with her teaching and her writing. And it wasn't lost on me that the conversation we had was unique. Who am I to talk with her? And praise God for his overflowing grace in my life. If this episode with Jen Wilkin was helpful for you, I'd love for you to share today's podcast with a friend. And wherever you get your podcast, it could really advance what we're doing with Real Life Loading if you'd rate and review us. And it's over-the-top easy to find us on our social channels. Just search for Real Life Loading or look for our links in the show notes. I want to thank my producers, Josh Batson, who loves Kenny G Christmas music, and Bruce Goff, who loves Bing Crosby Christmas music. I'm Shelby Abbott, and I love Amy Grant Christmas music. I'll see you back next time on Real Life Loading. Real Life loading is a production of Family Life, a crew ministry, helping you pursue the relationships
0: that matter most.